So what we saw uh, very early on, 0.1% of our users generated uh, content that was seen by like 90% of our users. Right. And so it, it's not even a curve. It's like an L shape. Right. And so the g- name of the game was to retain that 0.1% of content creators. But we had no real relationship with them. And we could not figure out a way to actually make it professionalized for them. And somebody, I remember somebody um, wrote me an email saying, Hey, I actually really love doing this. Is there a way for me to get paid doing so? And I was like, Unfortunately, the amount of traffic that a piece of content generates, regardless of how large it seems, doesn't generate enough advertising revenue for us to even pay for the postage stamp for that check. Our economics sucked compared to like today uh, because the market was just nascent and you know advertisers weren't really into user-generated content at the time. Huh. A time on the web when advertisers weren't trying to monetize on user-generated content. That sounds delightfully quaint. In this episode of Webmasters, we're going to explore the earlier halcyon days of user-generated content back when it was more about entertainment and less about big business. Or rather, less about big business for most people, but not our guest, Ben Huh. Ben founded the Cheeseburger Network, a wildly popular user-generated content network from the Web2 era, which I mentioned because today Ben mostly focuses on how content works in the Web3 world. And we're going to talk about how things are and aren't changing. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hello, welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast that explores entrepreneurship and internet history. We do it by having conversations with some of the world's most impactful and successful internet entrepreneurs. My name is Aaron Dinan. I'm your host. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. I'm also a content creator, which you probably could have figured out simply by the fact that you're listening to my podcast, but I also write lots of articles on Medium, post TikToks, tweets, blogs, and so on, all things I mention because they relate to this episode's topic and guest. We're going to think about online content creation, how it's changed, and how it's continuing to change. We'll get into all of that with our guest after I take a moment to... Well, make sure this content creator gets paid. You know what I'm saying? Webmasters wouldn't be possible without the support of our partner and sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like wildly popular content networks, aka the kind of business we'll be talking about on this episode. It also includes e-commerce stores, Shopify sites, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, and any other type of online work-from-anywhere business you can think of. If you've got one of those you're currently working on and you're thinking of selling it, you should contact the team at Latona's. Their experienced expert brokers are going to be able to help you get it sold for a great price. Or maybe you're trying to buy a profitable internet business. No problem. Latona's can help you too. Get started now by checking out the Latona's website where you'll find listings for all the businesses they're currently helping sell. That website is latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S dot com. As you already heard, the guest on this episode of Webmasters is Ben Huh. 
he ran a popular network of user-generated content websites called the Cheeseburger Network that, at its peak, was pushing close to 400 million monthly page views. It was such a well-known cultural phenomenon that Ben and his team had their own reality TV show on Bravo documenting their lives running the company. Oh, and did I mention this entire thing started because of some silly cat memes on a website Ben bought? I was actually blogging about just being a dog owner in Seattle, right? So it was just a blog about my personal experiences. And I was trying to figure out, like, how do they actually turn that into a business and maybe generate some ad revenue, uh, like using AdSense and experimenting with, like, digital ad platforms. I came across a pet food recall that was happening nationwide where lots of pets died. Because I have a background in journalism, I started digging around the company's archives online, which they thought they had, they had taken down and they hadn't. They just removed the uh, homepage link, found the docs and published them on my site. And uh, my site just completely crashed. I was uncovering information about a topic of news that no one seems to have figured out. And so for a brief moment in, in time, I was getting tons of traffic and one source of traffic stood out. And he was actually hotlinking one of my images, literally serving up one of my images off of my server on his webpage. And so I emailed him and told him to cut it out. Uh, that was Eric Nakagawa, the guy who started ICanSGeeSburger.com. Let me add a bit of color here to flesh this story out. The central site of the Cheeseburger Network was a website called ICanHasCheeseburger.com. Ben didn't start Iconized Cheeseburger. That was created in 2007 by a couple of friends, Eric Nakagawa and Kerry Unambasami. The site was basically a site full of cat memes, and it was getting around half a million visits per day, which wasn't too bad for a silly site about cats. Ben saw this, saw that Eric and Kerry weren't really doing much with all this traffic, and he had an idea. And then I followed up with... If he's getting that much traffic and I don't understand what this site is, I need to figure this out. What the heck is this? And so I was like, hey, do you need help with anything? Because you you have a ton of traffic and like, I don't know what this is, but I'm also learning. And that was it. That was like the start of the uh, the relationship. And uh, a few weeks later, we gathered some investors and we rounded up some money and we offered to buy the website. I was reading you bought the site for $2 million. What were you telling investors in order to convince them to give you a couple million dollars to buy a site of cat memes? Uh, the deal was that we would buy this website. I would leave my job um, and run it full time. That was pretty simple. We knew that the site was under monetized, right? Because uh, Eric didn't know about as much about advertising as myself and my um, angel group did. And so we, we knew we could generate more revenues. The other was that I was actually really just bored at my work, wasn't really challenged, uh, wanted to leave. Um, being my own boss, again, seemed like the right timing. I had learned a lot more after my first uh, failure as an entrepreneur. And so I was kind of ready as a person. So how did you go from that one website with a lot of traffic, but not like a ton of traffic? How did you go from that to a massive content network? Yes. Okay. So the thing is, we captured lightning in a bottle and we didn't know how that occurred. Right, the way um, viral uh, phenomena and memes were spreading online were not studied like they were they are today. No one cared, <laughs> and it was like, just a totally new phenomenon of virality. So we had to kind of replicate from scratch uh, and see if it stuck. And so the first thing we did was we did a dog version. It didn't stick. It's like okay, well there, there has to be different topics. So this is not about pets. This is really a content site about something else that is not pet related because the first site was mostly cats. And it's like okay. 
And then I started seeing other blogs that I wanted to purchase because uh, I was seeing their traffic numbers go up and it was clearly a form of entertainment. And so I found this person who was running Fail Blog and I bought it from him. And I went to my investors and I said, hey, we're actually an entertainment company. And so we're going to experiment with just creating single topic or kind of uh, very verticalized mimetic content. I didn't use those words at the time because no one would have understood what I was saying like they do today. And we're going to actually keep running experiments. The first thing we did was push out, I think, three or four sites. It took like two months each to build a site. And I was like, okay, that means uh, in a year, I can do six experiments. That's not going to work. We need to get that time down to one experiment every two weeks. And people are like, we can't really do that. It's like, well, let's strip out everything that we don't need in order to actually get our time down. And we did. And so we were actually running experiments all the time and then just like cutting off sites from the bottom that weren't succeeding. And so that model was like a federated model, right? Where he had clusters of websites that were kind of linking traffic uh, and SEO back to uh, main source. And then that kind of tentpole site would then generate more uh, SEO traffic and link backs um, to the, the parent. And so this kind of hierarchical kind of survivor-based model really worked out well. And we went from having, you know, two sites in our first year of uh, operations to like dozens of sites by the end of like year two. Okay, so that was 2007 when you started to uh, basically your peak was around 2011 or 2012-ish. So we're basically talking about the time period between when Facebook is taking over the world and uh, the time period when Instagram really starts picking up steam and people are posting more of their own content. Uh, I bring this up because it means you were monetizing on user-generated content kind of before people were really creating slash posting a lot of their own content. And it sounds like as people started creating more and more of their own and posting it themselves, that's when things started going south for you. Uh, so you basically had a front row seat to the rapid shift in how user-generated content was created and disseminated online. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. The other thing was the source of content really went from my personal photos and like things that I control to a platform that will give you an infinite number of base images to work with, right? And so it totally changed the supply chain, so to speak, of how these memes got created. And then now we're actually seeing it again, right, with TikTok and uh, other platforms that are actually far better at capturing the whole stack versus somebody like Reddit, who's like one portion of that viral supply chain. So this shift in content production and ownership, uh, this is the heart of Web 2 and, and now what's happening with Web 3, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. This is fun. Okay. Now we're getting into the meat. Instead of calling it Web 3, let's describe it as the ownership economy, right? And so I think that's the real meaningful differentiation in social media, especially for creators between Web 2 and Web 3. So if you can own your asset and then you can figure out a way to monetize it in a different way, the incentive structure and the distribution of um, money in that power law and the long tail changes. So what we saw uh, very early on at Cheeseburger was that 0.1% of our users generated content that was seen by like 90% of our users, right? And so it, it's not even a curve, it's like an L shape, right? And so the name of the game was to retain that 0.1% of content creators. But we had no real relationship with them and we could not figure out a way to actually make it professionalized for them. And somebody, I remember somebody um, wrote me an email saying, hey, I actually really love doing this. Is there a way for me to get paid doing so? And I was like, unfortunately, the amount of traffic that a piece of content generates, regardless of how large it seems, 
doesn't generate enough advertising revenue for us to even pay for the postage stamp for that check. Our economics sucked compared to like today uh, because the market was just nascent and you know advertisers weren't really into user-generated content at the time. And so when I fast forward to now, the middleman, the platform, is the one that's actually under attack. And the idea there is that if we can self-organize, um, if we can build software that are independent and are able to publish its own content and we let other people do the curation, the economy will be much fairer because there's no platform taking the lion's share of the revenue that's coming in. Um, I think that assumes that there is an active advertising and social media economy on Web3 in the future, and I think there will be. However, in the interim, in order for us to get there, people need to value the ownership of the asset more than the advertising revenue. You kind of see this with NFTs and then the discussions around IP and control over the NFT imagery. But if you are generating a meme, you would much rather, and you're much better off doing it in a system in which you retain the rights to that content and can sell it easily, that there is a market for that. I think we're about to see that happen. I think the challenge there is aggregating enough content uh, and making it efficient to make the Web3 part of it worthwhile. Web3 technologies are really slow and expensive right now, but we're going to see orders of magnitude improvement right before our, our eyes. So it's coming. We just don't know what format. And so eventually, you're arguing that the Web3 creator economy, like the Web2 creator economy before it, uh, the Web3 creator economy is going to be powered by advertising. We're just not there yet because the technologies are too new? Yeah. We have to look at the total efficiency of the system. Advertising and programmatic advertising has gotten really good at effectively uh, matching ad content with whatever you're looking at, the demographic of the person. That framework is also being challenged by the fact that the data that's being collected by ad networks are becoming fewer and fewer, right? So people want privacy, the tech platforms are supporting it, and so the, the data is going to become more valuable. That data is actually yours, right? Like, I'm giving off that data, but I have no control over it. It's like, you know, our frustration with the credit rating system, right? It is our information that other people are using to monetize assets. And so on both sides, both the content creator side and from the ad consumer side, People want to have better control, but they also don't want to put in the time to do it. And so I think those are two big forces that it's going to reshape and give Web3 advertising and platforms there an opportunity to like reform themselves. And so the opportunity on Web3 is that you have real transaction data that is visible to the public. And so while you know I would love to have some more privacy with my blockchain transactions, the fact is every transaction that I do on chain is broadcast to everyone in the world. And so if I've given up that right to do, to have those transactions be private, anybody can use that to actually create an ad platform. So based on my purchasing behavior or some kind of blockchain behavior, you can kind of figure out who I am and what I'm interested in uh, and then target advertising towards me. And so there are companies that are actively building that in this space right now. So even though lots of people kind of equate the Web 2 platforms with creating problematic privacy issues, Web 3 doesn't really solve any of that. And Privacy isn't maybe the problem people seem to think it is? Yeah, people generally want privacy if it's an ancillary benefit to something else, right? Like if I can if I can add it to my car for free on the way to, of, of checking out, right? I'll take some privacy with me. I think if you reframe privacy as monetization of my data, I think that becomes more interesting, right? Not many people really want to be hermits on the internet. Like they just want compensation for it. So if you can actually say, instead of universal access... There's 
a clear market-based monetization method and I feel like I'm getting my fair share, that's good enough for a lot of people. I mean, somebody has to own it, right? The fact of the matter is, if you are creating content on somebody else's platform today on Web2, you are giving away many rights related to that asset. Now, chances are that asset has zero value. Actually, it probably has negative value. Let's let's be honest. The average piece of content on the internet has ne- negative value because the cost of hosting it and serving it is incredibly expensive compared to the value of the asset. As I described to people, as the amount of content approaches infinity, the value also approaches zero. <laughs> Right. So what's happening, though, is that Web3 is also creating much more scalable platforms based on decentralization and protocols. And so IPFS, uh, the Internet Protocol for File Sharing, is a really cheap way to store content long term. And memes, if anything, create incredible amounts of variations of the same idea. And it is really easy to replicate kind of format. If there wasn't a storage format that could store all that information, the cost of supporting memes actually goes up and up and up. And if ad revenue drops or if the monetization model doesn't work for a Web2-based company, likely the entire library of um, images will be gone. But in an ownership-based economy, because it relies on a much lower cost structure, you can actually hold on to that information for a lot longer, effectively ad infinitum. In a way, aren't we talking about what's actually the real fundamental tension of the internet in the digital age, which isn't so much issues of privacy, but issues of infinite storage, or in Web3 terms, infinite transaction history. By that, I mean, you know, at no point in human history have we ever had such an easy ability to record and store such extensive amounts of information. And that ability to store all that information, well, that's creating all sorts of challenges and confusion as people basically grapple with a phenomenon that, I mean, honestly, it never previously existed. You know, that's that's a great question because every time humanity has solved the problem of scarcity for whatever uh, issue, we've encountered a massive problem on the other side. So like we've effectively solved the calorie consumption problem. We as a humanity generate so many calories that we can feed everybody on our earth several times over. However, that created the obesity epidemic, right? We connected everybody in the world, basically, uh, through their phones to be able to talk to one another. And it turned out that we generally are not very good at consuming good information. And so we created a lot of people who believe in conspiracy theories. It's the same kind of like rapid change from scarcity to abundance that causes a lot of social damage. I think it's like one of those problems that we have to pass through. It's it's like a, a subformat of like a great filter, right? As a civilization, you have to understand and and know that these things will happen. And so when, for example, you know, clean, cheap fusion energy comes online, get ready for some serious problems to occur, right? Even though we've solved a whole bunch of other ones. And so internet memes and memory is probably also one of those uh, things as well. We were able to forget and that allowed us to probably form newer cultures faster in certain circumstances. We may end up with a generation of people who are holding on to an idea of culture that is very, very static because our formative years were spent being immersed in just a specific set of memes. Now, I'm just speculating that as a possibility, but those are the types of problems that we will be creating. Would you say Web3 is more of a solution to the core problem of Web2 or an additional complication? Uh, so I think there's a very important factor that is different between those two generations, uh, between the ownership economy and the Web3 and the previous one. All previous systems required a filtering and sorting of the data or editorialization in order for the data to be preserved. 
we got to a direct format where we publish directly to the internet, but yet you're still kind of filtering your information through your own personal filter. Web3, by putting the transactions and activity on chain, we have actually moved away from what I think I did to what I actually did. And that is a meaningful factual difference, right? You're getting a very different type of information that you can actually access and analyze and editorialize if you want to, but you can point at the evidence because it exists on chain. And that's going to be in and of itself a revolution because you can't make that stuff up anymore. So the filtering and sorting mechanisms of Web3, uh, because they have to be based in documented, non-fungible information, uh, those sorting mechanisms and filtering mechanisms, that'll lead to better quality information. Is is that right? Well, actually, I actually think there's actually two different topics here. Uh, one is the idea of all quantum possibilities being possible in, in, in information, right? And that's the infinite library problem. The truth of the matter is, it's possible today. I could look at your browsing history uh, and probably generate, auto-generate using AI, infinite amounts of content that would just satisfy you. Good enough. And we're like probably two to three years out from being able to do that. On the other hand, we know that stuff is made up. But again, tying stuff back to blockchain-based activity that you can't forge, create uh, fraudulently, is really, really critical, right? So if you can trust that data, it really changes your relationship with that information. And this is the relationship Ben is still dealing with today, though not via funny cat memes. Instead, Ben is currently focused on helping support communities as they emerge in the Web3 world via DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations, which have become another of the many buzzwords in the emerging Web3 space. But uh, buzzword aside, the core questions around DAOs are really just questions about how communities are best able to interact online. It's a question Ben, via his experiences running the Cheeseburger Network, might be particularly well-positioned to answer. So from a media perspective, my experience at Cheeseburger dealing with communities and user-generated content and actually organizing uh, collections of information came in really handy. Uh, that's the part that I actually kind of enjoyed the most, the, the organization building part. A DAO forms effectively a democratic management over whatever network has decided to join the DAO. DAOs are effectively a primitive of the ownership economy. In other words, they will exist as a fundamental concept and appear over and over again uh, in different places because the need for people to agree and come to an agreement over the future is inseparable from our hopes and dreams. And so DAOs are the Web3 version manifestation of self-organization. Ben's words here provide an interesting framing for both what the web was and what the web is going to be. While in our daily usage of it, the web feels mostly like a tool for simple communication and interactions, all our communications and interactions in aggregate form something much bigger. They form some form of agreement over what the future should be. Yep, even those ridiculous cat memes you share, they're silly and they're fun, but in their own way, they're also a valuable tool for building community, which at its core is the most powerful technology of all. Just ask Ben Huh, the guy who created an enormous media business on the back of meme-powered communities. 
In fact, if you'd like to ask him, or even if you're just curious to follow along with what he's up to these days in the Web3 world, you can do that over on Twitter. He's at Ben Huh. You can keep up with us too. Webmasters is on Twitter at Webmasters Pod, and I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dinnan. That's A A R O N D I N I N. I also create lots of other content about startups and entrepreneurship, which you can find on my website. It's AaronDinnan.com. A big thanks to Ben for taking time to talk with me here on Webmasters. A thanks to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for helping pull together this episode. And a thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for all of their support. Remember, if you're in the market to buy or sell an internet business, be sure to check out Latonas.com. If you're in the market for a great podcast, you found one. Be sure to check out our archive of episodes, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to Webmasters so you get the next episode just as soon as it's released. I'll have that out for you very soon. I think you'll like it. But for now, I guess, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. Considering the company you ran, you seem like the kind of guy who would have just a, a bunch of kind of ridiculous stories about how things were back in the early days of the web. Uh, any funny stories you could share with us? There are a lot. Um, the problem is some are very not safe for work. Oh, okay. Uh, I was at the Webby Award Ceremony. Cheeseburger had won some awards, uh, and there's an after party. And that, that year, um, the other recipients were Bizstone and Buzz Aldrin. And so we go to the after party. I'm at the club with my wife, my in-laws, and Buzz Aldrin. And he's surrounded by some older ladies, like in a corner of their place. And the rage at the time was when you do a shot of Smirnoff or whatever, um, being iced. And so you'd go and like ice somebody by, you know, touching them with that bottle. And so Naveen from Foursquare uh, and I thought it would be really funny to go ice Buzz Aldrin. So we go up, introduce ourselves to Buzz. He's a, you know hero of ours, all the nerds. And we're like, we have iced you and you have to do this for the meme. And he's like, I haven't drank since 1967. I'm not going to start now. I was like, okay, thanks, boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that guy's still my hero though.